You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. It's the Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are excited for another podcast. It is the wrap-up of Missouri gun season. We've uh, officially struggled our way through that, if you will. Um, no kills for either one of us. Um, but it was a fun fun event. We got to enjoy deer camp. Um, first time I've been to opening day deer camp in several years. I think eight years. And... Uh, we ended up going through the 10-day gun season, wrapped it up, saw a lot of deer, saw a lot of great up-and-comers, um, but no shots were fired by either one of us. And now we're kind of reached that point where some guys are tagged out, you lucky guys, you, and other people are kind of sitting here going, how can I ensure that I'm going to have a fantastic late season? Um, here in Missouri, guns, actually archery season wraps up. January 15th, so we still have a lot of hunting left to do. And actually, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I enjoy the late season just as much as the early, probably more for the fact for, that there's no mosquitoes and no seed ticks. For me, it's it's definitely an, an anticipation for late season. And I think late season is often underrated in what it can produce because of the, you know, the connotation of gun season oh there's so much pressure or everything's killed off or whatever it may be but really right now from from this point on you're kind of at a, at a crossroads you know if you've harvested a buck you can kind of you know turn down the the gas pedal whatever take your foot off the gas and not hunt as hard or you know there's a lot of people doing that but then I'm on the flip side of it and saying this is the time when really all the preparation throughout the year is paying off and it's really it's crunch time because late season if if you have a farm that's set up and laid out correctly is the deer get really predictable yeah really predictable and the hunting because there's no more pressure or very little pressure around can be really really good and it's often underrated um you know, our friend Seth Harker, he calls it deer simber. Seth has taken lots of deer, lots of great bucks over food plots in December. And he, he actually it. told me that he likes December more than November. Yeah. And uh, for reasons, I mean, whenever you have the habitat laid out, you have bedding areas and laid out to where, okay, this is going to be late season, south-facing slope, west-facing slope. Deer are going to be bedding here when it's colder. And then you have the food sources, whether that be through uh, your timber management or through your food plots, and that he has both, then you know deer are going to be living on your place um, if they survived gun season. And now, with with everything laid out the way it is, he knows that, okay, they're bedding in this bedding area, 
and they're feeding in this food plot. Now, how can I get in between? And that's what the huge benefit to doing habitat management and and doing these certain things is. And for you public land guys, it's about finding that food source that the deer prefer during the late season that probably hasn't been hasn't had the hunting pressure that some of the other areas have had. And finding that spot and getting in and intercepting and finding deer when they're on the feet. And and for me, that was always finding the conditions when I knew deer were going to be on their feet and not hunting that food plot when when it was a really warm day or the wind was bad or swirly and I didn't go in and put pressure on that food plot, even when it's just a few deer that are going to be coming into it rather than you hit this buck. And I think back, I shot, now last year I shot sticker eight, that became the best deer I've ever shot with a bow, but uh, when I was in college, I shot a really nice buck with a bow December 16th um, on public ground. Deer were really starting to pour in and hit food plots. Um, in that area, this is almost on the Arkansas border, and deer, there really wasn't much food outside of the food plot. So you knew deer were going to be coming to food plots. And I found a food plot that um, deer were piling into, and I was set up on one end of it, and I ended up seeing like 17 deer that night coming into that food source. And I think what you, you talked about right there was a really important factor was that, you know, the natural food supply in that area, the acorns, they, there wasn't that many that year. So they're going to a food plot. And, and if you can key in on that thing, those, those circumstances, you know, each year of course is, is different in the production of acorns and, and a hard mast and red oaks are obviously a lot more preferred that time of year. And if those are thin, minimal, <laughs> then they're going to like it just narrows down the focus and the concentration which deer are going to be at during that time frame and, and that makes incredible hunting um and even if you have better food sources than those acorns sure they're still going to consume some but the focus may not be primarily on them so again if you're doing the work prior during the summer during the spring you're that this is when that pays off and Big for you time. guys that don't have food plots and you're going, okay, well, this podcast in for me, don't worry. We've got some advice and strategies for you yeah, coming no up doubt. later in the podcast. No doubt. We're, when we start really going through all these things. Because that's the other thing. There's such a there's such a difference between, and we often talk about it, crop country versus timber country. And there's great ways to manage for late season in both of those areas. And we're, we're going to discuss that. And, and, you know, this is, I'll just use an example we did a hit list, kind of a hit list podcast back in August, I believe. And we talked about um, some of the bucks living on the Prairie Hollow property. And one of those bucks being Mesa and how we do all this habitat work. And, and we're trying to shrink down a deer's home range. And by doing that, we know that they're going to spend more time on our property. And uh, we're going to have a better chance at harvesting that deer if we shrink down their home range and give them everything they need right there. But unfortunately, the drought, you can plan, do all this planning, but a drought hits and now you're scrambling. Our food plots didn't grow. And even though we did everything we could, the one thing that you can't control is the rainfall. And so we don't have hardly any food plots. And our corn got harvested late uh, instead of being cut for silage and then turned, planted in a winter wheat. It got harvested in late October mm -hmm. and then we planted and it was still we're still in a drought actually uh, Matt and I were talking before the podcast we're in a burn ban now because everything is so dry and so we did all that and then we planted the wheat and the wheat really hasn't grown really well so we have and the corn is by now what was spilled has been eaten up mostly by crows it seems like crows and turkeys yeah. and coons yeah and so we don't really have much food and and so we're in the we're in the very beginning stages of this habitat restoration project and so we don't really have the native vegetation that we want and so we're sitting here watching our deer have to leave our property to go uh, and when i say our deer that's just a generic we're not actually yeah. think we're controlling but the deer that are living on our property during the summer and early fall are now leaving because they have to go find food somewhere else and and during that time, I think that Mesa probably found a, a hot doe, and he trailed her up, and another another uh, guy shot him. And uh, props to him, he shot a great buck. But that's what happens when you don't have the habitat or the food sources that you need to, to feed the deer yeah. throughout the fall and winter. 
again, you know, as we talk about it, deer are going to find that that best resource. And and for Mesa, most likely, it was it was a hot doe that that chasing and took him off now, the or property. Or even that but, hot doe, or even that hot doe found the food source off the property. Yeah. And and then she became receptive, and then all the bucks caught wind, and that's where they were headed. Sure. And you know, those are things you can't control. But Mesa last year, we had him a very regular occurrence coming to one of the cornfields. So, you know, again, props to, to Blake who harvested him, but that was a deer that is like, well, we're not going to hunt that hard because late season, we know from historical data information that we gained in the past, he comes here. Like this is going to be a great place to be so able to harvest him. We found a shed in shed the cornfield. And had, had encounters with him out of that cornfield. He, he was passed last year. Um, but, you know, that's just one of those things. Preparation, um, you know, will get you those opportunities. And again, it's we're we're extremely happy that that Blake harvested it. But you know, that's just one of those instances where, you know, the late season, the work that you do prior to season can pay off during the late season. I think we all just dive on in and talk about yeah, those, those there's, things. There's several habitat things you could do. And there's several strategy things you can do, and some of times they're the boat, they're the same thing, mm-hmm. and uh, all these can, t- in turn, mean punching more tags for sure. So as we're talking about late season, I think it's important to kind of preface, okay, what what's the strategy behind late season, and why is there such a focus on food sources, um, specifically regarding bucks, and you know, why? Why all the focus there? And can I hunt mornings? Should I hunt mornings? What, you know, how do, how do I approach a late season hunt? Because I still got tags to fill. Um, and, and for, to answer the focus on food is, we kind of really examined what November was in the whitetail world. We, we did a podcast on um, a they, year in the life of a buck. Yeah. And, and talked about what they go through, you know, each portion of the year, each month of the year. Um, what their bodies are preparing them for, what they're what they're doing, their activities, um, and and November obviously is an extremely stressful month for a buck, and, and the the miles that they put on, um, what they what they endure, and that is why as as winter gets tougher, food resources get scarcer. That's why there's such a a turn to food, and why it's such a dynamite attraction. Um, for late season. And and one thing that we talked about was the stress periods. And one of those stress periods wasn't the month of December that we no, talked it's about. Not. It's late winter and even early spring. So March, February, March was being one of the more stressful times. So that's because at that point, there hasn't been much growth from native vegetation or the food plots. And by this point, deer have consumed or been eating on this throughout the winter, throughout November, December, January, February, and there still hasn't been a growth um, our growth period, um, by most things. And so we're sitting here going, okay, most of the food is consumed and it just keeps getting consumed and where hasn't been any regrowth. And that's the stress period that we're talking about. So, so they're, they're in return planning for that stress period by getting on those food sources, trying to make up what was lost through the month of November, as well as prepare for those harsher months. Mm-hmm. And that then kind of correlates with okay what about hunting these weather fronts through december what does that look like you know you hear so many different strategies strategies revolving around a weather front and the importance of those and the importance of getting out and hunting them but you hear so many different people you know oh i want to hunt the the beginning of that front i want to hunt the um the middle of that front i want to hunt the end of that front what really is the best way? When should you be putting your time in the stand as you're looking ahead? And and let's say, you know, you get a warm spell through the couple um couple weeks or whatever or, or a portion of a week. Do you go out and hunt during late season with those warm spells? Do you just sit at home and, and wait it out? What should the strategy be regarding the weather? And f- for me, there's a couple strategies because you don't for me, when I think of, I don't even know what today's date is. Uh, 27th. November the, yeah, the 27th. So when it comes to late season strategy, I think of, there's a couple different 
things, uh, when I think of a front, there's a couple different ways I hunt it and there's a couple different ways, habitat speaking, that we need to set up to hunt it. Every front is not created equally. Like you can't, uh, you have to really look at the specifics of what that front deals with. What, what are the temperatures preceding that front? How cold is it going to get? How long is it going to last? Mm-hmm. What are the, what are the winds? What's the pressure? And then from that, the strategy, the hunting strategy has to evolve out of that information. Again, you can't say that, oh, this is a front coming through. I'm just going to hunt it. Like, yeah. I want I want the details to be able to then make the best stand selection, or or sometimes even if it's not going to be that cold of a of a front coming through, I might I might go to a, a greens plot over standing grain plot. And I think that's something we need to say that you know a deer, unlike us, it gets colder. We pile on more. We put on, I put on my, I my on thermals yeah. and I put on, you wear your bigger, thermals when it's 50. Come on. I do. I wear my thermals all the time. Like but, my granddad used to it, do. And, uh, we, I just, we pile on more clothes, but a deer can't do that. No. So they have to regulate their body temperature by a couple of different ways, by where they're bedding, where they're getting in the sun, where they're trying to collect some heat and also their diet. Mm-hmm. If they're eating a carb, they're eating something like a, a high fat. You said carb. Carbohydrate. It sounded like you said car. They're oh, if they cars. eat a car. Munching yeah. on the old junk cars in yeah. the woods. They're eating carbohydrates. They're eating standing grain. They're eating corn. They're eating soybeans. Um, and then as it warms up, they're trying to eat a protein, a green, a turnip, or a, a, a wheat. Um, that's how they're regulating their temperature. Even clover during late season, though, too, can be great. And typically, that's that's a product of they don't have the ability to find a carb like mm-hmm. a like a soybean or corn. That's when I've seen them really start hitting because that's their only thing. It's to their only eat. thing, and they spend a lot of time there. Too. They, it takes a lot, a of lot it. to fill up, and a lot, a lot of time spent either right there close to um, bedded down close to that food source, and they come in, you know, midday, then mid afternoon, and then late, right before dark, they come in and hit it again. So uh, we've seen it. You know, even a early afternoon, late season hunt can be really, really. You can see a lot of movement during that. Mm-hmm. It can be really productive. And that's um, why and we preach diversity. I think that's exactly. probably the key word for our entire podcast is diversity, is having the ability to provide the different types of food sources for the deer. Sure, so sure. given the condition, they have something to eat. And they and, have a preference. Mm-hmm. You know, th- We're always going to have something for them to eat, but they're going to have basically, they're going to be able to have a food resource a quality food resource and and the amount that they need for each basically kind of temperature range in which that food source is going to be most highly highly selected. Think of it like this: if you plant nothing but soybeans or nothing but corn in in all your food plots, and late season rolls around and you're thinking, man, they're going to be hammering my corn or soybeans, standing grain, and your neighbor he just plants nothing but clover. Because he's, he's an absentee, he's a non-resident landowner, and he doesn't want to have to deal with planting, so he just plants clover. And December rolls around, and we're experiencing 70-degree temperatures, temperatures. Very mild, which it seems like we've had a lot. Last year was a perfect example. Perfect. They're not going to eat your food plots as much, because if they eat that, nothing but carbs, and it's already warm, they already have a winter coat on, they're not going to, even if they are consuming that, they're not going to move till after dark when temperatures are cooler. But they're going to spend more time on your neighbor's property. That extra carbohydrate produces more heat within their body to digest it. So they're warmer than what they need to be. And they're not going to put themselves in that position. So they're going to regulate it and not consume as much. Or like you said, come after dark. Yeah. And and no one wants that. That's not fun. So that's why the diversity in your food resources has to be in place each year because you can't predict the the winter. You don't you're not know for sure what it's going to be like. So having that, if you will, buffet that options to be able to hunt is really, really important. And this is our plug for diversity. Not <laughs> yeah. only is it fantastic for your deer herd and, and all your wildlife, but it's also fantastic for the soil. Okay. Thank you for that yeah. uh, sponsor minute there right there. Um so yeah, planting diversity is a huge plus in, in any type of management plan but that's kind of why we preach that of planting clovers and planting your your cereal grains and your and your standing grains your soybeans and corn so and uh, real quick while we're while on that there is a difference between 
corn and soybean selection that we see during the late season. Mm-hmm. Corn is a great food resource. They definitely hit it, but we see even more activity when it gets bitter cold and a higher selection on soybeans, standing soybeans over corn because of the, the oils that are within the soybeans. It's just one, the, the, they eat the bean pot, of course, everything. So it's a high fiber, but the energy within that oil creates more of heat. It's a better resource, more attractive, and allow them to regulate and, and, and get what they need out of a food resource. And frankly, they don't have to work as hard to get it. No. It seems like ear corn is kind of a pain or more of work to get to it. So, mm-hmm. um, But I think each one of them has their place. Definitely. No um, doubt. So no doubt. I, I would not, Matt may say differently, but I would not say that I'm going to plant soybeans. I, I like I soybeans both. because the fact that they provide a forage even during the summer months when they're growing, corn does not um, nearly as much. So I like soybeans for that aspect, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm never planting corn and I'm only planting soybeans because I, I like want, them both. I want both. Yeah, me too. And so that's kind of the, the whole strategy with food plots on the, uh, on the habit or – on this late season, but now we kind of, when we look at the front, now we go back. Yep. We got a, wow, we chased a, we chased a wild <laughs> hair there, but we're back to the cold fronts aspect of the late season. And part of that is, you know, when you think of a cold front in October, you think of, okay, we've been in the seventies, eighties, even nineties sometimes, and the winds out of the South or out of the West, but now we just got a Northwest or North wind and the temperatures drop down to the forties or thirties for the low. That's a great cold front. Wind was consistently out of the north during that time frame, and, and you know deer are going to move before, during, and after that cold front. But when it comes to late season, a cold front can mean a lot of different things for your area. Cold front here in the Midwest during December could be, we've been in the 70s. Like right now, we're experiencing 60s and 70s. It's horrible. It's it's horrible, but we get a cold front, and, and the high is in the low 40s. And the, the lows are in the 20s. That's a great cold front. Mm-hmm. But that could also mean that the highs are in the teens and the lows are in the negatives. So you have a couple of different types of cold fronts that you need to look for and how to kind of plan they co- your they hunting come strategy. They varying degrees. Certainly. Yes. And so for me, let's just cover the the mild cold front, the, the kind of the cold front where the highs are in the 40s and lows are in the 20s. Mm-hmm. To me, I want to hunt even just prior and now keep in mind, cold fronts come at different times. So if we say we want to hunt prior, well, if the cold front's coming in the middle of the night, you can't really hunt prior. You're going to have to hunt after it or during that cold front. It really depends on what time that or front's hitting. Yeah. yeah. And so you can't, this is the problem I have when, whenever somebody says, I want to hunt, I want to hunt, if cold front's coming, I want to hunt prior, during, and after. Well, a lot of times there's a wind switch in there, and most of the time you don't have a stand that's set up for uh, almost a 180-degree wind shift. So, Or a plot. It's, it's very tough to access it cleanly with a 180 shift. So yeah. setting yourself up knowing cold fronts are typically come out of the west, out of the north, and you want to hunt leading up to that or, or after that, whatever the preference is, you've got you've to gotta make yourself, you've got to make that plot accessible for those, for those instances. And... Knowing, okay, west, north, I, I want that set up, but then also have one on the complete opposite side because as soon as that, that those temperatures shift back and get back, if it's a really harsh cold front, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, I want to hunt the, the tail end of it too. So I want something back out of this, a wind from the south. I want to be able to set up. So thinking ahead of time and setting things up so you can access that and, and where you suspect deer to be bedding is critical for late season. Absolutely. It's a puzzle, but the puzzle, when the pieces come together, are incredible. And that's because the deer are so predictable at that time frame. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the work now, or it's the work during the spring and, and the playing ahead that allows you to be successful during late season. Absolutely. And so, to me, we, we've covered that mild one. But now, when you think of the late the late season or the, I, I guess, post, when I think of late season, I just think of post gun season Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. that could be late season is is late november all the way to january 15th um but when you think of that really cold cold front so now we're getting to where it's probably in december or january and it gets really 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 cold and the temperatures are now in the teens is the high and maybe the negatives for a low 
I don't typically hunt during that cold front. No. Because it is like, it's so cold, everything's just kind of a little bit in shock. Or it's a little bit like, woo, I'm going to, you know, and what I typically see out of that is deer bed down. They're bedded down somewhere in a west-facing or a south-facing slope with the where, and they're out of the wind. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to collect some sunlight to warm up or stay warm, but Just typically <laughs> there's yeah. not sunlight during that time frame. It's probably very cloudy, it's very overcast. cold, yep. and deer just kind of hunkering down, waiting for the front to pass. So, and frankly, I don't want to be out there when it's so doggone cold. And and you know, it, it's kind of regionally based. A lot of times, the deer that are are subjected to those temperatures um, for those longer durations. They have to get up and feed. There's a certain point. There's there's a threshold in which they say, "I can't, I can't. I have to eat. I have to eat. I can't sit here any longer. I have to eat." But that's typically after the front has passed. In in our area, those cold fronts don't hang around for that long. But in other areas, if they do, <laughs> if they're the further extended ones, the duration is much longer. Then that's when during those cold fronts, maybe not that first day, the second day after it's hung around for that long, but three and four days into that, deer will be moving their tails off. Mm-hmm. And that is a time to strike when those longer duration cold and fronts that's, last. That's typically, you know, here where we're at in the in the lower Midwest to where a cold front usually only lasts for a few days or mm-hmm. and even if it does last it's like that third day is the magical day to me yes. um and even in for our listeners in Michigan and Minnesota Wisconsin wherever that third day could even be the magic day for them and and I assume it is cuz of my friends that hunt up there a lot is that at that point they either the cold front has passed and now it's warming up or they have to eat because it's still cold and and they have to survive and to me, that is the day I like so much just because and and early on in my hunting career, I would think, oh, cold front's here. They're going to move like crazy. It's super cold. And I can remember going out and absolute freezing my tail off and never seeing anything. And, and seeing very few deer. Fawns. And, and then out. hunting the coming days and going, mm-hmm. man, they're moving more now. Yep. And that's why I like that the front passed or the front is here. Now it's just starting to pass. The wind is starting to calm down. The sun comes out. And that's what I love about Ooh. the sun coming out after that first initial bitter cold snap yep sun comes out deer move like crazy that i would much rather be hunting then than during that wicked cold front yes no doubt and 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 it's again it's the preparation that allows you to be able to do this successfully because if you don't have those food resources Mm -hmm. and a neighbor does Again, like we said earlier, they're going to be bedding close to that food resource so that they don't have to expend much energy getting from bedding to food. They can concentrate on using that energy to stay warm. And you could completely lose either much of your hit list, your whole hit list, or a large portion of the deer herd that have been using your property if you're ill-prepared. Yeah. And, And so now knowing, okay, cold fronts, I'm going to hunt them. Here's how I'm going to approach them, depending on the severity of them. And I know I'm going to be on the food resource. What about a morning situation versus an evening situation? I, I think we're not going to spend much time on this because it's pretty obvious. But I, think I, I don't I don't hunt mornings really after December 2nd, 3rd. I don't really want to hunt a whole lot after the rut basically the end of November. Now, occasionally some years, it seems like that that second rut, and I, I kind of chuckle when I think of that. Cause that's like every magazine article in the early 2000s yeah. seems like they wrote about the second rut, the second rut, but outdoor second rut, stream wore them pages out. Yeah. About it. The second rut. But anyway, um, that's a whole nother podcast. I don't even want to talk no. about the second rut. Let's just say the second rut, um, and mid December kind of your area depends on when the, Dauphins are becoming, yeah, but it's here in the Midwest, it seems like it's the middle, the middle of December. I may occasionally hunt a morning then, but not a lot. Um, I don't, I don't want to, frankly, because I think an ideal situation, you've set the property up to where you don't have to, and it's too, I, I would much rather stay out and hunt an afternoon. Can you kill a deer? Late season in the morning. Yeah. Yes, you certainly can. It happened uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, filmed a, yeah. a buck getting just, killed on a morning, but we were December setting up a food plot. Yeah, 
yeah. It, it was just the, it was kind of the perfect storm. It was the right time to strike. Went in and did it. But initially, you're going to have better success in an afternoon situation. And I will say why that why we hunted that morning. It was because on the cameras the deer were piling in in the mornings, and it was because it was of- so close to a bedding area, mm-hmm. and we were getting heavy frost during that time frame into where the food plot was covered in frost. And then as soon as the sun came up, it burnt that frost off and deer were bedded close to where they came right back into the food plot. Correct. And that's why we hunted in the morning. If and you're in a situation a like fawns, that, those and fawn groups was. right there. So like, well, this is kind of the best of both worlds. Let's get in there. We had a buck that came in the camera, uh, during shooting light, uh, I think a week prior. Yeah. And it's like, well, similar situations. Let's get in there and see it worked. Yeah. But the bet that's, that was the perfect storm kind of deal. During this time frame, the late afternoon hunts tend to be the most predictable in deer in deer movements. Absolutely, and I think you may like. Let's go back to that morning. You may harvest a, a deer or a nice buck in the morning, but it's the damage that you could do potentially. Correct. Um, by yeah. going in in the morning, blowing deer out of that food plot, and they never come back. Um, so that's one thing you have to look out for. Sure. So, late again afternoon hunts. That's that's the preference. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't spend much energy on the morning hunts. Yep. During the late season. Um. So now we know wind hunt, how to prepare yourself for the cold fronts, what food preferences may be, and know that I need to focus on those food food plots, um, and food resources. Not may not always be a, a food plot, and that's you know this is a time frame also when a lot of camera locations are beginning to be switched maybe off of those really high traffic bottlenecks onto those food resources where you can monitor them and see how deer start off of scrapes. Them. Yeah. Off of scrapes. Um, and put those. So you, now you have that, that information to be able to hunt off of and go off of. So now we're in timber country. I want to address timber country first for late season success. What can you do? What areas should you be focusing on and all around habitat? Mm-hmm. What do you need to key into based on what deer are looking for in timber country? And this is this is a huge problem. I know everybody who's hunted timber country, if you were blessed to be born and raised in the in the oak timber, I my heart goes out for you because I'm right there with you. But there are some things that we've learned and strategies we've done over time that have been, oh, that that could be money. And I think of Timber country, food is scarce. By this point, a lot of white oak acorns have, have been consumed or, or spoiled. Um, there are some red oak acorns that, by this point, they're starting to really start. They're starting to really eat those red oak acorns, and that is because when those acorns fell, they were really high in acid. And as they've kind of Panic broke acid. down, um, deer are really starting to eat them now. So red oak acorns could be a huge attracted um this year unfortunately in our area there aren't a lot of acorns red oak acorns um and what few have dropped are already consumed and so there's really not a lot of food in the timber if you're hunting a typical closed canopy forest but there are some other things you can do correct one of those things that we've started using or doing over the years is we're going in with chainsaws and we're cutting a lot of our trees that aren't going to provide any value. So you think of trees like hickory that's not really much value for us. And frankly, where I'm at, there's a bajillion of them in the timber. We're going to cut a lot of those younger trees, fall them over. Now, what is on those trees, Matt, that could provide any sort of forage? Woody brows, the buds, the very tender edges of the twigs at the, the very top of that tree. So again... It, we think of woody brows. It's an it's again it's often forgotten resource that deer use day in and day out. We always try to think about the next food plot, and again, those are important. But it's native brows that keeps deer alive and keeps deer fed day in and day out. In in areas that aren't managed a lot, like correct. You know, food plot is such a key word, such a searched item everybody wants to talk about food plots but sometimes you're in situations where you can't plant food plots Mm -hmm. and you're trying to think of ways to provide food this is a way and this is a way that most people don't talk about 
Correct. And we all want to talk about food plots, but this is a way that we can provide forage in timber country in rough areas where you may not have the equipment, but you have a chainsaw or you have a saw and you can go do this. And it can be done right now and hunted right now. And actually after. follow along with us because this is something we're going to be doing this winter, um, not only with the timber harvesting that's going on, um, but also going to be doing this ourselves with chainsaws. We're going to go in and try and we're going to cut a bunch of trees and then we're going to hunt over that in the following days because all those young buds and, and tender ends of the trees are now a preferred food source because mm-hmm. we don't have food plots because they didn't grow because of the drought. But now we have this food source that's available now to the deer that we can hunt over. And, and we've talked about hickories, another tree that is is very present within this landscape and not so much in, in other areas, but we're cutting and selecting some of them um, for browse, immediate browse, or dogwoods. They have a great bud on them right now. And those those trees, because they are so present in this in this timber, we're, we have the ability to cut them and use them for immediate uh, a food resource right now. Um, in other areas, people wouldn't dare cut a dogwood, but here we can, we do, and the deer key into them. I, I think of a the stand that you shot um, sticker eight out of, and and that's another area that currently right now. Although that cutting had been done now two years ago, mm-hmm. that's going to be an incredible area because in that portion of the timber, there was a lot of dogwoods that were either hinged or flush cut, as well as hickories, as well as some maples. And whether they have buds or not, they still have tender shoots or tender ends that the deer will be feeding on. That was going to be my next point. was if And if you do this year after year in, in a certain area... You have, not only do you have the stump sprouts, which are providing great forage, mm-hmm. but you also have um, the, 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 that year. So it's almost like a two and three year process to where you cut one year and the deer eat the buds that were on those trees that fell. But then the next growing season, they stump sprout. Yep. And then you come back and you cut more trees around them. So you have the first year buds and young twigs on those trees, but then you have the stump sprouts of the previous year's cutting. Correct. And Correct. and you do that over time, and you're conditioning deer to this. I, I love a this. resource late season. That's just it, it is. and But you condition them to the sound of a chainsaw means food. <laughs> yep. And if you do this, and I, we preach this to a lot of our clients that are in timber country and friends that have no food plots, and they're like, what can I do? Well, this is something you can do. Mm-hmm. because And you do this so much that deer start conditioning this to the sound of a chainsaw means food. And so, and it sounds crazy, but you can go in, start cutting these trees, hang a stand, come back, kill a deer that are coming to what they hear, the sound of chainsaw, the smell of chainsaw, that means food, and, and they're coming in to investigate it. They're, they're very curious animals, especially during the cover of darkness. That's why you see deer at nighttime in areas you're like, why are they bedded down in that guy's yard? They're curious, they're comfortable at night, and they go in and investigate and find a food resource. Um, it could be that night or, or the next couple nights. And sometimes it's great to put, put a trail camera out there, figure out when they're coming in and, and investigating, um, and then come back and hunt. But as soon as they realize that, oh my gosh, look at all this food resource here, they're going to start using it and preferring it, and that's when you go in and capitalize. Now, let's say you're in an area that has already had some cutting done and it's commercially logged and you've got clear cuts and and basically the work's been done for you Mm -hmm. but that's another resource that you really need to key into you've got areas of uh greenbrier you've got areas with more woody brows because of the stump sprouts from um bigger logs bigger trees have been commercially removed um and all sorts of other different types of, of of buds and and Food. Uh, when you're saying clear cut, you mean you're talking young forest. That's uh, young got, forest regenerating. Yes, yeah. that's that's exactly what. In case you're trying to follow along and get what he's talking about, so so it's it's been commercially logged, it's clear cut, and all that stuff is starting to regrow again. That's the food resource that the deer will be keen into if there's no other resources around, and you can see that sign. You know, deer are going to prefer that to bed in, of course, during November and such, but. It's going to be tough to, for them, for you to pull them out of that area during the late season because there's cover, 
Um, the vegetation's typically short, so the sun can get through there. So they're going to bed there, and they're going to feed there. It can kind of be difficult to hunt because of that. However, that's the area still to hunt and to key into. The edge because, of that area. Yeah. Yes, that is where they are focused at. Yep. In timber country, they've had those clear cuts. Do I dare bring up another thing that we've noticed deer browsing on this time of the year? And I don't like it. Let me be straight up. I would much rather have something else. Sure. However, it it, it is very popular, as in it's, it's unfortunately, um, <laughs> it's an invasive species. But because of its palatability and and because of since it is an invasive it's not it's still green at this time of the year and we're not going to talk let's talk all about it before we ever even mention what it is see if you can guess what it is and the way it grows it's typically accessible because of its nature and the way it grows on things that it's within reach for Mm -hmm. deer and it provides a ton of forage lots of forage but I just want to be clear. I'm not advocating planting this, transplanting this stuff. No. I'm an advocating kill this stuff. But if you do have it on your property, it could be consumed because, and this is why I'm an advocate of killing it because there are native species that I would much rather have that aren't as invasive. Um, this species grows and can really choke out any of the native vegetation. It's not, it may be beneficial to the deer, but it's not as beneficial to other species, quail, turkey, stuff like that, because it's too thick. Now, that is, are you ready to say what it is? Down south, people love it. I remember reading articles about people spreading this and planting it because it was such a fantastic, and I say that in air quotes, fantastic food source because, frankly, it was the only thing that could grow and that's Japanese honeysuckle. It's basically, you know, it, it, now, unfortunately, because it's been here for so long, it has its place. Now. Not on my farm. Now, I'm not saying that, again, it should be promoted or anything. However, if your other resources, if your native browse is not present, they're going to key into that and use that as a food resource and prefer it. I've, I've harvested deer. I, I think of um, going back to Virginia in late late season, especially we got a lot of ice and it'd be tough for deer to browse in, in the fields um, because of the ice. They didn't like sticking their nose in there. Um, because Japanese honeysuckle was elevated off the ground, you wouldn't have to do that. And typically it melted first because it would warm up. It was a little bit higher and drip. Anyhow, they'd go in, and I'd go to bottoms where I knew the Japanese honeysuckle was. And usually along beaver swamps and stuff like that, the edges, it was there. And you would see deer browsing on it and selecting that first after those ice storms or snowstorms, again, because it's up off the ground yeah. and would either not have much snow on it, or if it had ice, it'd be one of the first things to melt. And they'd, boom, go there. I killed deer and hunted because... Japanese honeysuckle, honeysuckle because of that. Yeah. And again, preferred? No. Do I want to promote other things? Yes. But if that's what you have, <laughs> hunt it. Yeah. And that's why it's such a, I'm torn on that one, mm-hmm. on even talking about it. But it is such a debated, especially in like Facebook group Habitat Managers. I see that debate all the time. People right. promoting it, fertilizing it, <laughs> trying to spread yeah. it. And then I'm over here trying to kill it. Yeah. Um, and and make sure you know the difference between bush honeysuckle and Japanese honeysuckle. When it comes to bush honeysuckle, kill it, kill it, kill it. Don't stop killing it till you hunt it down and yank the roots out of the ground, basically. Yeah. Japanese honeysuckle is not they're, they're as invasive, beasts. but I would still want to kill it and promote a native uh, food source and native habitat. So, yeah. Um, One other thing that can be done, and this is... Uh, Plot size, food plot size, if you are in timber country, they typically are a little bit smaller. However, one of the resources that you can use and plant during the late season that, you know, this is unconventional time to plant. November, you don't think of planting a food plot or planting anything for that matter. However, if you're in those areas and food resources have been depleted and you're thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And you've got these small areas. Let's not forget about cereal rye and and planting that 
during this time. And winter wheat. And winter wheat as well. The small grains, those two especially, can still grow during November and December. Yeah, and, and frankly, I know a lot of, I know cattle farmers that plant this to graze during the during the winter months. Um, and even you just mentioned My, pre-podcast, your cousin was yeah, planting this. Yeah, he's planting it right now. It's in Virginia. And that he's planting it because of after grain harvest, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 So yeah. he harvested grain. He just got it out of there. Now he's going back and planting this as a cover crop. Correct. And it'll be terminated in the spring prior to planting. But he's planting it right now, knowing that it's going to grow, it's going to take root, and it's going to hold and and capture those nutrients right there at the top of the soil. So next year when he plants, they're still there. Yeah. But and it's going to establish itself enough during this time of the year for wildlife to eat on. And but, he's using it to basically stop erosion oh, and yeah. mine nutrients mm-hmm. and keep everything right there ready for the spring planting. His goals are different with it, but, but it's still providing it's still the same principle that exactly. I plant it, it's going to grow. For us, it's going to be planted, it's going to grow and provide tonnage for a food resource to be able to hunt over. Yeah. And and so that's something that people can do and it's so outside the boxes. Okay, we have planting season. You plant food plots in April, May, and you plant food plots in August, September. But outside of that, you don't really plant them. But that's where you're going to use agriculture practices implemented into the wildlife agenda. Yeah. So minimal soil temperature needed for germination in cereal rye is 38 degrees. So if you're on that verge, if you're on that cusp, go out there with the soil uh, thermometer, check it, see if you can do it before you purchase the seed or before you go in and do the work for wheat, it's 35 degrees. Now, what we talked about prior to the podcast was, you know, the difference in, in wheat and rye. Um, it seems to us what we've seen and heard from, from our friends in the agriculture world, that the rye is a little more hardy. It, once it establishes itself, it will grow and put on more tonnage quicker than the wheat in these cooler temperatures. Even yeah. though wheat can be planted a little bit cooler and still grow, it may not put on as much tonnage during this time frame. So when you get those warmer days and, and you're experiencing that growth, remember that, okay, that that cereal rye is growing and it's fresh and tender. What's going to happen? If it's fresh and tender and that's the only thing in your neighborhood in timber country that's fresh and tender, you're going to have a great resource to hunt over. And I think of a few farmers that do practices in, in, in around my hometown that are different than most people is they would go in and drill in cereal rye or even ryegrass some, and I don't like ryegrass at all, no, but no. they would plant that. And, of course, deer in timber country are so hungry during this late January or during early January period, even December, depending on the winter. They would drill it, and then we'd see 30 deer in the field, mm-hmm. and we're like, Oh is every deer in Prairie Hollow on that yeah. field? And frankly, every deer in that area was on that field, that's for sure. And it was just because that was such a young and palatable food source, an attractive mm-hmm. food source. And frankly, there's not many other food sources out there. So Correct, correct. You would think, now it's not going to be the big, beautiful, knee-high No, you're not going to have 20 inches of growth. However, if it's five to six or seven, maybe... Mm-hmm. Even sometimes three. Yeah. It depends on how hungry they are. Exactly. You're feeding how, a deer herd, and now you have, not only are you feeding the deer herd, you have a great hunting location, um, and you're also helping out the helping out the deer herd by providing something. Absolutely. And, and the wheat seed's really not that much. You could, we can, around here, from a local feed store, get wheat and cereal rye, 12, Ten, 12, 10 to $15 a bag, 50-pound yeah. bag. And, and if you have an acre, that's... 20 25 bucks to be able to plant an acre food yeah. plot like it's not now, that bad I would not hear us out this is where a no till drill practice is much more preferred it's always more preferred but especially this time yeah, of the especially. year because you go out and plow up and disc up a field right now and then we get a massive there's there's really not going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be able to grow in these temperatures um, so you plant some wheat and nothing else is really growing, no other, no other weed source, and you get a massive rain, you're going to have erosion uh-huh. bad. So and, and and if you have a small window in which you can plant and you get a freeze, and then you're exposing all that moisture that the soil had, 
boom, it's frozen. It's hard as a rock. You're yeah. spraining and ankles as you go across it. But then you look ahead and, you know, you could have planned because there's a warm spell coming. That's why you don't disc up the soil because yes. of those reasons. No till that, that freezing thawing. Keep that soil conserved. Drop it in. Let it work and move on mm-hmm. and let it grow. Yep. That's where like the 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 genesis comes in really handy. You're, you just talked about um, doing this in a pasture. Yeah. And we're actually planning on trying to do this. Now, we've talked about it in earlier podcasts about planting in a pasture, but we haven't had the rain, so we're not going to waste our funds and seed on planting and it not germinate. Or, right. But right now we're starting to get a little bit more rain, not a lot of rain, but we are getting some, and the pastures are starting to really get short. Fescue is starting to really get consumed. Clover might be going a little dormant or other other grasses are going dormant. So we can drill right now in a short pasture and have great, fantastic. We're planting an annual and have fantastic forage even later on for the cattle, but also prior for the wildlife and and a great hunting strategy. Um, to me, this is just a win-win. Oh, it's um, a huge win-win. And so, I mean, this is something that a lot of people can do. You can rent a drill. You can buy a drill. You can use a drill. Whatever you need to do, find some cereal, grain, um, rye, and wheat, and have just a leg up on your neighbors. And For a, sure. And so that's something um, that I think we're excited to try, and hopefully you guys can try too. No doubt. Let's talk about crop country. And crop country is a whole different ball game, but yeah. it's one that has, again— the preparation, if it's done right, you can have incredible success with standing grain and or cover crops in crop country and getting deer within range. You know, immediately you think of, okay, limited cover within crop country because of its nature. You've got a lot of open fields. You've got wooded draws. You've got some hillsides that have got timber on it or, or provide that little bit of cover. Or you have CRP ground which deer have now preferred to start bedding in. And those south-facing slopes are incredible during this time year. And if you have the time and the ability to work with a local farmer and strategically place areas in which he does not harvest, pay him the, the market price, what the grain is selling for in those areas, my gosh, the hunting can be just dynamite because let's let's think about it for a second okay a farmer in his process he he is yield based he wants the most yield for his crops in every acre of every field he plants so he has done all the work he has the knowledge he has the equipment already in place it gets planted he's done the fertilizing he's done the liming the crops are going to grow as good as they can get so let him do the work Come up with a little bit of like a contract, you know, flag out an area, talk to him about it as he's planting each spring and say, hey, just to let you know, you know, what we talked about, I'm, I want to I want to purchase this this grain in the field and just, you know, don't harvest it. Here's where I'm talking about. Do that as he's planting. So just he has it in his head. You know, hear, you hear the horror stories of of a farmer who, um, you know, you have that agreement with and then unfortunately he lets someone else come in and combine and they combine the standing grain that you hadn't anticipated hunting over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you hear that and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know what I do. But you have to have that in place, flag it out, and and pay them to leave that grain standing in the field. Yep. And that resource right there, again, because you can expect that that's going to be better than what you can do with your food plot Certainly equipment. anything better than you can plant right now. If, oh, yes. if you didn't get food plots in, you better start talking to that farmer because that's the best option you have. Yes. So having that planned out ahead of time. And and here's, here's the thing we talked about earlier with those food plots. Make sure you leave that standing grain in the areas that you can hunt with a, a north northwest wind when those cold fronts are coming in or they're they're they are in the longer duration so you can hunt as they're um, hitting their hardest and then also have the ability to uh, approach or or hunt them on a south wind as well yep. you, you've got to be able to be versatile enough again that's 
the diversity word, have diverse stand locations for different winds so you can hunt them and, and be planning ahead of time for those fronts. Now, here's the other option. Let's brainstorm. Um, a lot of areas, crops may already be harvested. And you're yep. like, I don't know what food I have left. But here's where we intertwine agriculture practices with hunting strategy is you need to approach your farmer. Let's say you're sharecropping or or you're just hunting your uncle's farm and he plants crops. And you're like, how can I get him to, okay, all the food's gone, but I want to try and do some cover crops. And he may not cover crop. Do the research. Find the research on cover crops and the benefits to farmers and, and the process, I guess, in the future of being a benefit to their crop program is you say, I will buy the seed if you donate your time on fuel and plant the seed. Mm-hmm. You're going to use their equipment. They're going to use your seed. And you don't have to plant the entire field, but you plant the back portion. Let's say you plant an acre or two in the back and just see, okay, let's let's look at the erosion um, where you left it bare versus where I planted cover crops. And you use that as part of a negotiation to try and get that farmer to plant some cover crops for you. Exactly. Working that relationship, using it to your advantage, and knowing that, yeah, you're going to have some cost up front. But what happens if you do this in multiple areas and he sees the benefit of it? And he says, you know, next year I'm going to pay for it or I'm going to do more or I'm going to do a rotation based off of the corn soybean. I'm going to do this here, then this here. Now you get basically you're you're kind of getting your foot in the door. There's a lot of a lot of talk. Not everyone does the cover crops, but through the farming community, it's becoming more and more popular. Yep. So if you put your foot in the door and say, "Here, let me let me get this ball rolling. I'm going to front the seed cost. I'm going to pay you to do this." Now you're getting somewhere mm-hmm. with that farmer. And the first year it may just be an acre. It may be. Or next year, maybe five. Next, next year, year maybe the entire field. Correct. And you, but you just don't know. However, you know that if it does get planted, that the deer are going to come to it, and it's going to be <laughs> a great late season food source. Yep. But you can't be afraid to ask and and initiate something like that. And when it comes to even whatever you own the property or you're renting the property, leasing the property, or you just have permission to hunt the property is always trying to find these win-wins. I feel like we say this all the time, but it's trying to find the win-wins and trying to find a benefit to the farmer as well as you. And this is a great example of benefiting the farmer and you. And such big proponents of habitat management and, and management of wild species and blah, blah, blah. And, you're, we're we're people managing right now. This, uh, that's what this yeah. is. This is this is going beyond people just management at the habitat and knowing that's it's going to benefit it. But this is understanding what they're looking for and, and what's going to benefit them and, and you as well. And and I hate. I mean, it's kind of we're managing the people and the soil. This is a huge soil conservation practice. We're, and in the show notes, we're gonna have a couple links for. Um, Videos. Cover crops. Cover, cover crops. crops. The benefit yeah. of cover crops from um, great resources that we use and read on. Um, those are going to be in the show notes. So make sure that you can feel free to use those, pass those along to the farmers, um, to you know your uncle, to your grandpa, whatever, whoever it may be. Um, but share that education with them and let them know that, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking. I- I'd-, I'd like to see this implemented, and I'm going to help you get started on a program that's going to that's going to get um, some more soil management um, principles, practices in line here, knowing that's going to help the deer hunting, or yeah. the, or who and who knows what else. Like it, it's a great way to get started in soil management. Mm-hmm. And it's an environmental type thing here, um, of of managing it and improving the environment with this soil conservation. Um, think that kind of let's go ahead and do a nutshell in a nutshell kind of the show um we did this last week or week before last and i I had some positive feedback on that so here's your in a nutshell the podcast and kind of reminders of everything we talked about so timber country guys things you can do for late season habitat work as well as late season improvements for hunting success and one of these is cutting out doing some timber stand improvement or cutting out these 
trees that are less that are not valuable so for our area that's hickories and dogwoods even some sassafras cutting these trees falling these trees to where the buds and and young tender woody browse is now within Accessible. reach um, of the deer so now it's a hunting strategy we're providing a food source now another thing you can do is locate the bedding area during that time frame uh, so it's probably a south or a west facing slope this time of the year and put that in an area to where Okay, deer are now associating the running chainsaw with a food source falling, so now they're going to it. Let's place that in an area to now where I can get in between the two and catch the deer coming from the bedding area to the area that I just cut. That's a great strategy that we're going to be using, and we've... And Make Matt, sure you space them out accordingly. Yeah. yeah. Don't nope. put that cutting within 100 yards of where they're bedding because then you can't get in between or you're going to bump deer possibly going to and from... Give yourself enough room to maneuver in and out. Plan out before you even make that cutting. Plan out the uh, travel corridor in which you anticipate them using. Figure out your entry and exit, and then make your cutting according to that. Yep. And 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 that's gonna make a big impact on the success that you can have. Again, not only this year, but the next year when there's the additional buds and re-sprouts and such from what you're cutting right now. Yep. Plan it out. That's what we're doing year after year after year. And, and so we've and created different areas. Different we've created slopes. great food sources even when we don't have food plots right now because of the drought. Um, another thing for cattle country guys, which could be also timber country guys, they, for they us some, it's, it's both. Go hand in hand. And uh, is, is using no-till drill and drilling in some of these species that can grow in cooler temperatures like winter wheat and cereal rye. So drilling yeah. those into overgrazed pastures even just pastures in general, because they're starting to go a little bit dormant right now. Um, you can drill that stuff into those areas, and now we have a great food source that's not only going to be benefiting first and foremost, going to be benefiting the deer herd and the other wildlife, but down the road, um, as that grows a little bit more, it can be um, very beneficial to the cattle. So you can use that as a leverage to talk to your dad or your uncle or your grandpa and getting that food source and getting them to plant that on their place. Um, and now for you crop country guys, um, if there are still standing grain, you can talk to the farmer and buy a portion of that field. Um, I, I encourage them to do it during the spring. before, As he's planting, make oh, yeah. those plans ahead of time. Let them know, I anticipate whatever the price may be, whatever the market is at this time, I'm buying it, this part, this parcel, for this amount, Whatever it may be. Or, and just you know, plan ahead. looking at the crop prices right now, they may be going, ugh, we're going to harvest these and we're just going to store them somewhere and wait till the prices mm-hmm. go up. You might be able to buy it back a little bit more expensive than what they would. Mm-hmm. Um, it still might be cheaper than you <laughs> going to buy a bag of corn or whatever to dump on the ground. Who knows? But um, I would much rather buy it. You can buy the crop right now still standing in the field. Um, or you can talk to the farmer if the crops have already been harvested and go in and plant what we talked about in cattle country, cereal, rye, and winter wheat in those areas as a test run for cover crops. Or One thing we haven't really mentioned is the fact of what if you have a farmer who is either ahead of the curve or getting into planting the cover crops already? That's another resource if he's harvested all the grain. If you haven't had a chance to um, work with him and, and leave standing grain, those cover crops and understanding what still might be growing at this time. Let's, let's say he's got a mixture of, of the, some cereal grains. He's got a mixture of radishes and brassicas and things like that. Those radishes are, are really not that palatable right now. Ugh. They've gone through um, hard frost. They're they probably decomposing. Stink. They probably stink. But if, if he's mixed it and their cereal grains, the rye and the wheat, and you get those warm temperatures, they start to grow again. That's those tender shoots that you want to key in on. Um, those areas, even though it it may stink with those radishes, can be a great a great um, food resource, and you need to be able to identify that and hunt those. Yep. I think that, that that's a, pretty well a, a wrap-up yeah. Yeah, of everything that we can do, no matter what area you're in cattle crop timber um, I, there's always something to do wildlife management or habitat management is lifelong and it's and it's frankly it's every week you can find something to do to improve it and i, I want to encourage people to if you've had the mindset in, in years past of oh it's, it's after gun season it's a waste 
just try this. Try, try, get out there and try these these improvements, um, and and hunt the late season. Use the use the strategies talked about. You know when to hunt, how to hunt, um, and, and implement these things because the success is really just around the corner. This is a extremely good time to be in the deer woods if you do it correctly. And if you've got an extra tag in your pocket, it's not tag soup. There's a lot of season left to hunt and a lot of things that you can do to put the odds in your favor. Um, I, I just, I don't want people to think that they can't hunt right now successfully, no matter where they're at, no matter how their property sets up, there's things you can do right now to still be successful. For sure. Um, on that note, um, remember to check us out on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Land and Legacy. Um, also check out the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on social media. Leave a review. And leave a review if you like it. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> if you don't like it, don't leave a review. <laughs> <laughs> so leave us a review, please, on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on iTunes. Um, or, or on Stitcher. Yeah, yeah, wherever else you listen to it. And uh, if this is something, this is just a little plug. If this is kind of if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget we are consultants. So give us a shout. We love, frankly, this whole podcast was created to help people um, understand habitat management and, and motivate you, um, hopefully, to do it on your place or wherever it is that you hunt. Um, anything else that I'm forgetting, Matt? I uh, think that just about wraps it up. Um, for our local listeners, remember that we have a – QDMA banquet this Saturday night, December the 2nd in Mansfield, Missouri. Uh, We've started, Matt and I and my brother started a QDMA branch, Ozark Highlands branch. We also have a Facebook page. You can check that out. It's kind of a local thing, Um, trying to do some habitat. This is pretty much everything we talk about, but we're going to be doing... Um, everything we can in the local neighborhood. So and working together with yeah. people, getting that mindset of of hey, we're all deer hunters. Let's help each other out. Let's improve the habitat, improve the hunt, and go from there as a group of people instead of individuals trying to work. You know, <laughs> we're trying to manage it, it and say, hey, this is my deer, my deer. Yeah. Um, hopefully, if we all get on board and we're doing this, we can all Make reach the impact. benefits and. And future generations can enjoy the hard work we did right here um, in 2017. So, yep. Anyway, that's what it's all about. Thank you guys for joining us for another Land and Legacy podcast. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there. We're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.